This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Farahma. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. We welcome Dr. Farouk Yahya again to the show. Just to remind you, he joined us for a discussion on Malay magic. But today we're going to talk more about the history of the Islamic arts in the Malay context. And he is the researcher for the Ashmolean Museum of Art and Archaeology at University of Oxford. And uh, welcome back. Glad to have you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. So we're going to talk about the Islamic arts here, especially in the Malay context. And I guess the first thing we can start with is what that might mean, right? Because when we think about Islamic arts, we think about architecture, for example. But when we think about the monuments that we have that are Islamic, they're not that many, right? So um, I guess so. maybe paint a picture for us on how we can start thinking about what that means for our context, Islamic arts. I guess to begin with, Islamic art as a term itself, it's quite difficult to define. I mean, people are still debating what does Islamic mm-hmm. art mean. But to put it simply, basically Islamic art is art that's produced by Muslims or for Muslims. So so not necessarily architectural buildings, but can be objects as well. And does it have to necessarily be spiritual? Not necessarily. I mean, as I said, Islamic art produced by Muslims. So right. It can be secular objects as well. I mean... When we study Islamic art, we tend to include things like secular objects like ceramics, ah, bowls. Right, and, right. Um, so they're not necessarily work. devotional arts. So it could be yeah. just in the context where Islam is prominent culturally yes, and there yes, is a yes, yes. person who made it who identifies as yes, Muslim. Yeah. Or it can be objects produced by non-Muslims for export to ah, for, made for Muslims as well. I mean, that's the broader meaning of Islamic oh, that's, art. That's so really that's how... So now, at what point did that become significant in the Malay context? At what point could you say that you have a culture of producing that sort of art? There's a distinct style that makes it Malay. I guess with the coming of Islam to the region, then things, well, when the makers and the patrons and the users became Muslim, then you can consider things as being part of Islamic art. But also certain objects like gravestones, for example, Mm -hmm. probably... I would say, began to be more prominent. Things like mosque architecture. So, you know, Muslims, you pray in a mosque, especially on Fridays. So you have new types of buildings being built to accommodate these new beliefs. But it sounds so expansive, that term. It could just refer to any artefact, almost. Yeah, I mean, when we... Quite a lot of museums, when you talk about Islamic art, tend to encompass like many types of objects. Right, yeah. Right. So... It sounds like it has to, first of all, have historical value. Yeah. It's not necessarily have to be of a certain quality or it doesn't have to be necessarily yeah. like path-breaking. So yes. uh, it sounds to me like there it's iconographic in a sense or it's historically significant in a sense and thereby this helps us understand the context better, understand the certain themes of the time yes. better. Sounds yeah, like. I mean, these objects are important to learn about, you know, how people lived uh, in the past and what, what was important to them what's significant in their lives and what they meant, but also things about intercultural exchanges. I mean, you often find things being exchanged, being traded. So it shows 
connections being made between different cultures which is not necessarily apparent from reading political treatises or mm-hmm. histories. Um, right, right. Or, yeah, I mean, sometimes two cultures, you might not necessarily see it being documented in historic documents, but when you see objects being traded, right. you know that there were contacts between those two cultures. So Great. Because I mentioned architecture largely in wondering about where this stuff are, yeah. right? In the sense that maybe in an older place like Istanbul, mm-hmm. you can tell that there's a legacy of the arts that yeah. identifies with Islam or yes. Muslim identity. Whereas in Malaysia, maybe it's a younger context. We don't see it as much as part of our everyday spaces. So where are these things located? Are these largely relics in museums? Or do you think with your knowledge, you can kind of point them out more in a kind of everyday context? Like, I guess in terms of well, Islamic art in the Malay context, the mosque would be the most obvious one because it's so prominent. Mm-hmm. Everyone can see it. In terms of other objects, basically, they're sort of everywhere. I mean, the museums have them as well. I mean, there's, I guess, the Museum in Gara and Museum of Islamic Arts, Malaysia, would be two important places for us to see these things. Unfortunately, the climate of the region means that quite a lot of material hasn't survived. So mm-hmm. we don't have very many early stuff, especially because Malay culture tends to do things a lot on perishable materials like wood and textiles. Mm-hmm. And therefore, most of the objects we have are quite recent. Why is that? Why is it that easily perishable materials are more preferred? Well, firstly, they're readily available mm-hmm. in the forest, easily available around you. So manuscripts might have been made from leaves or it's palm leaves. So you, know, you can just go to the tree and just mm-hmm. get these leaves. They're easily available. I guess they're easily manipulated to create works of art or objects as well. And it's just something... Circumstances. Yeah, circumstances. Like, yeah. And it's not restricted to the Malay area, but also other parts of Southeast Asia. For example, in Angkor, you see all these huge temples, but they're made of stone, mm-hmm. whereas the palaces, the houses have all disappeared because they were being made of wood. Right. right. So, so you've mentioned other contexts, even in the previous discussion with, with us on magic, that it seems like a proper, a fuller understanding of Islamic arts in Malaysia has to take a regional approach because the interconnections are so compelling. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, there's there's lots of connections between Southeast Asia with other cultures like India, the Middle East, China. What I found really fascinating with uh, when I was studying Malay magic and divination manuscripts is that quite a lot of the art, actually it's not just in the manuscripts, but in other places as well, how there's a lot of Chinese influence, for example. For example, one of the things I was looking at, these creatures called the Naga, the Naga serpent. And this is a mythical serpent which lives underground. In English, we call it dragon, right? Not quite. It's a separate species, Ah, actually. So the Naga is a mythical serpent. In Indian art, it tends to be shaped more like cobras. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Malay and Southeast Asian iconography, visual depiction, tend to be more almost like a Chinese dragon, but without any legs. Mm -hmm. And on the cover of my Magic and Divination in Malay Illustrated Manuscripts, I put a picture of a Naga there, which... I chose specifically because it's an Indian creature, Indian-derived creature, the Naga, but shaped like a Chinese dragon. And around that is text written in Malay, written in Arabic script, mm-hmm. which I thought was, you know, perfectly encapsulates everything you need to know about Malay, Malay art, which is so, so varied and diverse. Yeah. So. Now, do we call it Malay art 
uh, or Malay Islamic art largely retrospectively because the context today means that they were at a location where Malays are, they've been sort of referencing the Malay context, or was that consciousness of being Malay in this art is not so prominent? I mean, how do we understand the identity of these works? I guess if they're produced by Malays for Malays, then it would be Malay art. Probably the stuff we can see today probably be more accurately described as Malay Islamic art mm-hmm. because before the coming of Islam, there would have been Buddhist and Hindu art, so you could mm-hmm. probably call that Malay, Buddhist or Hindu art. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as I said, unfortunately quite a lot of stuff hasn't survived. So it's very hard to trace the artistic evolution of Malay art over the centuries. Most of the stuff you have are mostly quite within the last 200 years or so. Yeah, and that's an interesting part when you compare artistic or creative adaptations today and back then. You can sense a certain dynamism that maybe isn't as apparent today, like in that today the creative exchanges happen largely in the context of globalization. There are strong capital flows from the West or the empire countries through popular culture that makes, I guess, local popular arts have to somehow adapt their styles, mm-hmm. yes. right? largely because that's how the market works. Yes. That these creative adoption of these different themes influence politically, or was it just a largely aesthetic decision? Or did they do this because, well, if we adapt arts that refer to maybe Indian iconography, business would be better? I mean, was, was uh, that a consideration? Yeah. It can be partly. I mean, this arts can be produced commissioned by royalty. I mean, the royal patrons who have been very, in the past, they would have been one of the major patrons of Malay arts. Mm-hmm. So it's the royal element as well. Again, you do find instances of other cultures, economic reasons as well. You do find instances of other cultures producing objects for export to other places. For example, in the West, you have the Shinoiserie movement where people were very interested in Chinese-type mm-hmm. decoration. In fact, uh, in terms of magic in the nation, you have these ceramic porcelain bowls produced with Quranic verses and the magic square talismanic symbols. These were produced in China for export to the Muslim market, including to Southeast Asia. And we find many examples in the Malay area as well. Mm-hmm. So. Economic reasons was one of the reasons as well. Right. So I'm guessing given that the interaction was so lively and rich, it would not be unusual to find maybe Hindu motifs alongside what we call Islamic motifs. And this would not be something left field. I mean, this, this, I would expect that that would be the case, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, so example, the lotus motif is still very popular in Malay art. And that in Hinduism and Buddhism, the lotus symbolizes many things like purity. Mm-hmm. And that still continues today within Malay art. You find many lotus motifs around. Again, the Naga serpent, as well as I mentioned, is basically a creature derived from Indian mythology. Mm-hmm. And that still continues within Malay art. As well as, I guess, prominently the um, things, even the mosque, the architecture of the mosque probably with the square base and tiered pyramidal roof, probably dated to architecture belonging from pre-Islamic times. Well, most likely it is. Well, I guess in relation to this question of cultural characteristic, is there a difference at all between what we would call Indonesian uh, Islamic art and Malaysian or Malay Islamic art? Or is that just, are those terms like arbitrary? Or do they actually speak to different kinds of approaches? I guess in a sense, there's quite a lot of similarities. I mean, it's very difficult to 
put political boundaries on exactly. art because you know people move around and it's not a really clear cut division between one area and another. That said, there are certain types of styles and certain types of objects which are more popular in one place rather than another. Mm-hmm. So it can go two ways probably. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. So there are overlaps. Yeah, uh, but you see certain tendencies stronger in one context yes, than the other. Yes, right? yes, interesting. Yes. Let's take a break now. We'll be right back after the messages. We're discussing the history of Islamic art in the Malay context, and joining us to do that is Dr. Varu Yahya of the Ashmalian Museum of Art and Archaeology. This is me, Ahmad Fort Rahmat on Night School on BFM eighty nine point nine. BFM eighty nine point nine. You're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fort Rahmat, and uh, we are talking about. Islamic art in the Malay context, and joining us for that is Dr. Varu Yahya. He is a researcher at the Ashmalaya Museum of Art and Archaeology at the University of Oxford. I'm wondering about intellectual context now, in that you work for museums and you yes. curate for a museum audience, and that may put your discourse a little different, uh, at a different place than, say, popular understanding of what Islamic art means. So, Maybe to start the second part of the discussion, you can tell us a bit about how you approach the subject matter more particularly as a curator. I mean, job of curator is not only to look up to the objects, but also to inform the wider public about these cultures that you're, you're responsible about. And trying to show, well, firstly, what types of objects were produced, but also what they meant for people. And you kind of have to do it in an accessible way for people, especially if they don't know anything about the subject. And it can be quite difficult thing to balance. You have to relay the information in such a way to make it accessible, but not dumbed down. Yeah. But also, you can't overload them with information because, you know, people... Exactly. Yeah. And as a researcher, it's hard to do because you come with all this information, right? And yes, you yes. don't naturally know what's significant, what's not. That requires a bit of editing. It requires yes, yeah. a lot of like filtering too. Yes, yes. So yeah, I mean, museums do quite a lot of work trying to figure out what's the best way to convey this information yeah. to the public in an accessible way. And so. this resonates to the earlier point you made in that when you think of Islamic art, you think of a wider range of things yeah. and say what popular understanding of art typically assumes and that has to be pretty, has to be skillful, it must show some kind of yeah. technique, yes. it must be on a prayer mat and stuff like that, yes, right? Yes. Whereas for you, I think you're looking at all indications of some creative expression of yes. the epoch, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. so it can be quite difficult thing to balance. But again, it was part of your job to make sure True. to educate the public on these various aspects. Yeah. So. You know, I was flipping through your book before we record it, and the immediate thing that stands out uh, is the diverse range of animals yes, kind of yes. being represented in these texts, which you just don't see anymore in yes. contemporary Islamic design, where everything is geometrical, everything is mathematical now, it looks like, right? Shapes, everything's yes. about shapes. There's less concern about nature or animal charisma, mm-hmm. right? So, why are there so many animals and where did they go? Well, firstly, in Islamic art, in the broader Islamic world, there's no prohibition on depicting figural images of human beings, of animals, and so on. You find images of figural beings, humans, and animals throughout the centuries in many parts of the Islamic world, even from the earliest periods. Although, that said, attitudes vary across time and region. Now, that said, there is a clear division between religious sphere and the secular sphere. So you you wouldn't find these 
animals and human beings within Qurans or in the mosque, but you would find them within a palace or a manuscript of historical works. So in the Malay context, these magic and divination manuscripts tend to have a lot of animals. The most popular animal is the Naga serpent. That's the most common animal I found. The Naga serpent, one of the divinatory practices is that it is believed to live underground in the underworld and every three months it rotates its position across the four cardinal directions. For example, in the first three months of the year, it faces north, the next three months east, and so on. And you have to know where it resides mm-hmm. so that to make sure you don't have bad luck or whatever. Yeah, so yeah. because you make... For example, if you're building a house, when you're digging the house foundations, you have to make sure you don't hit its head. Or if you're traveling, you right. make sure you don't go into its mouth. And for some reason, that resonates with, well, I guess resonates with Malay society because we find many images yeah. of these nagas within the manuscripts. I, I always think about the role that these creatures play in the, in the imagination yeah. of, of the past, right? In that... Mm. We are blessed, I guess is the word, to have knowledge of nature in that now yes. we, have at a, we are at a time when human beings can classify animals. We know where animals are, we know what they look like, we know the climates they adjust to, so on and so forth. Whereas back in the 15th, 16th century, that knowledge is just absent and nature appears like this mysterious entity out there. And yes. we don't really know like what they look like other than from stories. There are no images. Yes. There are no pictures we can point to to say this is what a gorilla looks like, this is what a tiger looks like. You know, if you're lucky, you might have encountered them, but even then the encounter isn't a popular experience. So coming together as that moment of encounter, the possibility of encounter, are these monsters, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> to say, okay, well, we don't know what the depths of the jungle looks like and who exactly is there, but we know that we should be careful, we should be afraid. And I guess that feeling comes out in the form of these creatures, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. In fact, interesting you should mention it. It's one of the interesting animals I found when studying this manuscript is the the lion. Mm. Because lion is not native species to Southeast Asia. So sometimes you find images of the lion kind of Depicted in a fantastical way, it has wings, it has an elephant trunk and horns and so on. And also another thing I found with the lion is that sometimes the text would translate it as tiger. So, for example, stories uh, which come from the Middle East where they might talk about in terms of a lion when it's translated into a Malay or Javanese context, they would translate it into a tiger instead. Yeah, so. the book Guns, Gems and Steel, the author's name escapes me right now, but yeah. it talks a lot about the domestication of agriculture. Okay. In the sense that for the longest time, humans just can't pick a fruit and eat it. They don't know what it is. Yes. So a lot of that is like trial and error. But yeah. then when they know what to eat, they have to sustain that access. So they have to know how to plant it. Yes. That's another experiment as well. So nature is always this scary thing. Yeah. Until now, of course, we're destroying it because, you know, um, that's just what humans do, I guess, these <laughs> days. But for the longest time, we needed a way to represent the awesomeness of it all, this yes. thing that overpowers you, that, that never really welcomes you. And this is where I think the use of animals are very, very useful, right? Yes. To capture the emotions behind it. Whereas today in the modern era where we've really like domesticated all of nature, yeah. we just use geometry, right? <laughs> Maybe so it's more conceptual now. 
Um, but one thing that stands out, I guess, from our discussion here is that the term Islamic in this case does not necessarily mean orthodoxy. Yeah. Right? Where today, anything that is Islamic has to be stamped by yeah. a certain body, right. has to be verified by a certain cleric. Back then, there's a lot more room to, I guess, apply one's understanding of Islamic to yes. different things. Yeah, I mean, the people were Muslims and they thought of themselves as Muslims. So, and they were producing these objects as being Muslims. So, I guess in that sense, they were being produced in an Islamic context. So, mm-hmm. you can consider them as being an Islamic. Now, I think at one point you mentioned that a lot of these texts yeah. were largely for the royal context, right? But to what extent were they reflective of popular motives? Could you say that there was such a thing as popular art back then? I mean... Do you have any indication that art was not just for the elite, but for the masses? Was that already germinating? Um, I guess that's you know, the royal patronage of art, but also the people who have been producing art themselves. The trouble is, the ones that were produced by the general public were probably less likely to survive. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, we have sort of a biased knowledge about art history, not just with Malay context, with other mm-hmm. cultures as well. But People are researching to popular art mm-hmm. and popular culture. Yeah. So because you said that a lot of these the art that's produced, say the visuals of animals, yeah. um, diagrams, they had a practical import, right? Because yes. you didn't have a museum culture then. So yeah. a lot of it had to have some kind of resonance with everyday life, right? Yes, yeah. Quite a lot of what we term of Malay art and Southeast Asian art even are basically functional. Mm-hmm. So they were being produced for temples or for religious purposes or for utilitarian purposes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's just that nowadays you might see them more from the artistic point of view. Mm-hmm. That said, there is, in terms of devotional objects, you do try to make things look as beautiful as possible in the religious context. For mm-hmm. example, Qurans tend to be the most beautifully illuminated manuscripts because you know it's the word of God, so it tends to look really, really beautiful, whereas other texts might not be so very beautifully decorated. Mm-hmm. So at what point then did the art locally modernize, right? Was there a conscious decision to say that, okay, and with modernity in the Islamic world came orthodoxy, right? Yeah. So when did you notice that questions about what properly counts as Islamic entered the discourse? When they say, well, you can't do this, this is not Islamic, you can't yes. depict Muhammad, yeah. right? you can't depict serpents and stuff like that, yeah. I guess it's a more recent phenomenon where there's a bit more of a conservatism, there's a bit more concern about these figures. But when you look at in the past, there were more... Again, I suppose it depends on the context of the time and place, but these things were being produced back then, so they could reconcile themselves mm-hmm. uh, with producing figural images within Islam. So Yeah. I'm assuming, too, that some of the images I saw had script around it. So there was not a neat boundary between poetry and painting, for example, or poetry and image making, it seems. Or Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's quite a lot of connection between text and image, in the manuscripts especially, because, you know, manuscripts have text in them, and there's very close connection between text and image. You often find an image containing text. But also in objects as well, you often find inscriptions on them, for example, telling you who made this object, or rather, usually who it was made for and what year it was made. And occasionally, you might find religious texts being put on there, like Quranic verses mm-hmm. or prayers. 
basically to imbue it with our blessings. Um, right, right. So having those texts is a way of, I guess, sanctifying it, right? Yeah, in a certain and way, adding yeah. a protective element. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the presumptions in our discussion is that this was something interesting a long time ago, right? And that things have sort of changed because things have gotten conservative, so on and so forth. But do you find in your very thorough research of the archives, of going through these manuscripts in great detail, themes that are still alive today, questions about art, questions about Islamic identity that you feel uh, they were grappling with that we can also learn from? I guess art is always evolving, culture is always evolving. I mean, we shouldn't try to, I guess we can't really try to stop time and keep everything as the same. Culture is always evolving. And what I find interesting looking at buildings and objects being produced nowadays is how it still takes into account all these different diverse influences. Mm -hmm. So even though they might have more influences from other parts of the Islamic world compared to before, I find that fascinating because mm -hmm. it's still sort of continuing the very interesting Malay take on mm -hmm. taking all these different influences and putting it into a, you know, an interesting Malay context in a yeah. way. So. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Hantu before, right? And how even in the Middle East, you have this thing as jinns, right? Yeah. But here we've sort of localized that and yeah. we've given added... We've added more color to it, right? By talking about hantus, for example. So yeah. that those modifications are interesting. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I mean, I found Southeast Asians in general are not taking things from foreign cultures wholesale without thinking. They do select certain things which resonate with them and they localize them. Yeah. I think that's something that we often underestimate, the power of the longer standing local or homelier way of living and being, yes, right? Because yes. now in the age of globalization where there's so much cultures mixing, we tend to think that the more dominant culture will just overpower everything else. No, yeah. there's still a lot of staying power in yes. the so-called local cultures, yes. right? They don't just fade. They, they find a way in it somehow. Yes, yes. Speaking of then, what would you say is unique about the Southeast Asian account of Islamic art, as opposed to the Middle East, where it's often thought to be more authentic? I guess Southeast Asian Islamic art, I find fascinating because it has a very local aesthetic. Mm -hmm. For example, the Qurans being produced have the illumination, the decoration within them are still very part of Malay art, as you might say, and have many connections with other types of media, such as mosque architecture, wood carving, textiles. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of overlap between different types of material in terms of art. And mosque architecture as well, which is the square base with the pyramidal roof. Yeah. That's a very local Southeast Asian thing, which goes back centuries. And so. I don't see many of them anymore these days, though, unfortunately. We're very yes. Moorish these days. Yeah, I mean, modern mosques nowadays don't have the bulbous onion dome. Yeah. It tends to be more... Mm -hmm. that way so yeah so it'll be interesting to see where things go right yes. what sort of imaginations lead us to kind of because at that point at some point though we just can't keep mimicking too right yes. i think there'll be a point where we get saturated and we want a certain local flavor to things so yeah i mean i just see that turn happening yeah it'd be interesting to see how in the next 20 or 50 years, how Malaysian art evolves and what kind of directions it takes. Yeah. Do you sense that there is greater curiosity about your field at a popular level? Because you had that talk at Ilham Gallery and it was yes, packed. Yes. Right? People were talking about it afterwards. People were texting me about it. 
telling me about how they thought it went and most of the receptions were positive. So that's a sign to me, uh, or maybe it's just about magic and Malay's love magic, <laughs> I don't know. But that's a sign to me that a lot of the more classical things that we take for granted as ancient relics yeah. are being you know, are being met with new curiosities, you know. Yes. That the younger people, they realise that, well, there is a heritage here and we need to just question it a bit more, look into it a bit more. Do you sense that as a researcher that your field is going to meet with new potential moving into the future? Yeah, it's definitely an emerging field, a burgeoning field. People are definitely more interested in this topic, not within just the Malay context, but in the wider yeah. Islamic world as well. I mean, Recently, we had a conference at the Shmolin Museum on Islamic occultism, and that was bringing together all these emerging scholars who are researching this topic mm-hmm. within the wider Islamic world, both through objects and art, as well as intellectual history. It's definitely a growing interest in this field. That's so. wonderful. And maybe we can hear more about it in the future when you come back, you know, um, we can have you on the show to talk about other aspects of your work. But for now, let's unfortunately wrap up. You are... Available on Twitter. Yep. Your handle is Farouk Cat. Yes. You're a cat lover. Yes, I love cats. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. And uh, they can also look you up at the Ashmolea Museum website. Probably. Uh, you can, if you can't, if contact Ashmolea Museum and they'll redirect great, to great. me. So. so wonderful. Or you can email the show, bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, uh, BFM Night School. Type that on the search space and download our app. You can find it at the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks again, Farouk, for joining us. You're and welcome. hopefully we can have you on another time in the future. Once again, I'm Ahmad Farouk Rahmat, and you're listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.